What's an evangelical, Mark? What's an evangelical? Well, I made a living for almost 40 years teaching undergraduates and graduate students, and I got to say a lot. It's complicated. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. What makes an evangelical an evangelical? And what does that even mean? You know, recently we had a conversation with historian David Bevington about that very question. And we talked about four things that describe, not define, he was quick to point out, evangelicals. And if you remember, they were number one, the authority of the Bible. Number two, the centrality of the cross or the atonement. Three, conversion or this idea that no one is born a Christian, you must become one. And number four, activism, both in sharing the gospel and living out social concerns. There is a great deal of talk and confusion about what it means to be an evangelical. Some people don't want to use the term at all anymore because as soon as you bring it up, people roll their eyes. They associate you with certain political positions and a variety of different other things. I know some have said, I'm not even using the term because it causes more frustration and pain than it does in me furthering the gospel. I know of others that say, no, we have to hold on to that term. We have to cling to it because it really does describe who we are. This is why I brought in historian Mark Knoll. Mark Knoll is a former professor at Wheaton College in Notre Dame. If you want to know about North American Christianity, he is probably your guy because he has written extensively about it. His books have been read by leaders and students and been go-to texts for many Christians. And today, I get to talk to him about another book that he contributed to, simply entitled Evangelicals. A book, by the way, that David Bevington also contributed to. These two giants of contemporary evangelical history help us to see in greater detail who we are as evangelicals, both in our history and in our practice, as well as many of the issues that we're facing in our time today. I don't know about you. I don't know how you see this or how it works out for you, but it can be overwhelming. Every time that I look at it, it seems to be overwhelming because it's sometimes hard to get a hold of simply because there seems to be this idea whenever we bring up evangelicals that it promotes division and even greater confusion. After all, in terms of American evangelicalism, where we live and work and minister, I mean, who counts? Who do we listen to and who do we not? Who is part of our tribe and who is not? What does it mean actually to be an evangelical? Or does that term even mean anything anymore? And how does Dr. Bevington's quadrilateral work itself out in real life with real people? What happens when we don't adequately live out our beliefs? When people who do fit our spiritual beliefs aren't generally considered a part of us for reasons of history or ethnicity or politics? These are the questions that are found where we live. These are questions that we must ask ourselves because it helps us to understand who we are and what we're doing. And as Dr. Knoll said to us, you know, it's complicated. (laughs) But before we get to our conversation, we can't provide you with the watering voices of faith without your help. We need your financial support. Go to apolloswatered.org and click the support us button or simply click the link in your show notes. We provided it for you. And I want you to know that by doing that, You're becoming a waterer to the world. You are standing in the dry places, pouring out the water of life, making sure to bring life where it's been languishing. You know, I had one pastor send me a note about what the show meant to him. And he said, the conversations with the people are so encouraging to me. It's great being able to listen to these great Christian minds to know that people are wrestling with these issues. There's so much in the media that is so worthless. And then you listen to these people and the difference the Christian worldview makes. It's obvious. As well as the difference Christ actually makes in their lives. That is an encouragement to me. And you know, that quote is an encouragement to me. We want to be able to give encouragement and hope so that you can accomplish the mission of God 
where you're at. Now, with that in mind, let's get to my conversation with Mark Knoll. Happy listening. Mark Knoll, welcome to Apollo Swatter. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Well, here we go, ready or not. <laughs> okay. All right, here's just an, here's a simple one. This is an easy question. How do you like your coffee? Black, uh, with caffeine, before noon, without caffeine, in the afternoon. All right. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good basic one to get us started. I like that. Number two. Now, this one, because you're a historian, what is the one figure from American history that you would love just to sit and have coffee with and pick their brain? I've been working recently a lot on African-American uses of the Bible. And one of the most interesting people is James W.C. Pennington, Hmm. who was born enslaved. He uh, escaped, published a book called The uh, Fugitive Blacksmith, became a Presbyterian minister, wrote the first textbook for African-Americans on the history of races, uh, eventually pastored in New York City and eventually down south. What was just a, a terrific person of God, but then also a, a re- really uh, extraordinary a student of the scriptures. He had to learn to read when he was in his 20s. He was Whoa. the first, first person to sit in as a, a black student at the Yale Divinity School. He, he wasn't allowed to take classes formally. And uh, so, I mean, there are other people I've known about and studied for decades, but Pennington, I've read his books and books about him the last five or six, 10 years, and, and really an interesting guy. And what, what years did he live? Well, I'm, this is approximately 1820, 1815 to 1875. Wow. And when's this book supposed to come out? Well, the book is out uh, uh, this past year called America's Book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization, 1794 to 1911. And so Pennington shows up a couple of times in, in the book as a, as a really key figure. I really want to learn more about this guy. He sounds like a fr- phenomenal man. He didn't well, learn to read until he was 20. Well, this is actually one of the, uh, the fun things about studying, uh, trying to broaden out study of, of evangelical tradition. Pennington is, is just as evangelical as the day is long, but he, he, does, he doesn't have the standard Caucasian hermeneutical approach to the scriptures because of learning it and even preaching it while he was still learning to read <laughs> And wow. then having, having the experience of uh, internalizing the scriptures from his own experience and not the experience of, you know, the Reformation and the English uh, settlement of America and, and what, was, what, what was common in the white world of, of the time. That's, uh, I, 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 it's a character that I wasn't familiar with, but I, now I want to learn more. Um, well, I, can't, I can't blame you because maybe until 10 years ago, I'm supposed to do this for a living. And I maybe, <laughs> maybe heard of him, but not really done too much study. <laughs> well, there's just so much to study. I mean, you can't study everything. Right, exactly. That's a humbling, humbling realization. Oh, my goodness. Well, let, let's get to our third question. This one's going to be a little bit different. But if you were a restaurant, what restaurant would you be and why? We had a lovely little Chinese restaurant here in Wheaton called Fu Yuan's that is now just recently closed. Oh. It was where I used to go have lunch with John Wilson when Books and Culture, he, the editor of Books and Culture, when it was still going strong. And when we moved back to Wheaton after uh, living 10 years in South Bend, Indiana, we were delighted to come back to Fu Yuan's because the uh, service was good. The, the food was delicious. It was not pretentious. And if you sat over your table for 45 minutes for an extra long conversation, nobody, nobody minded. Unfortunately, they've closed. So we're, 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 we're missing that gastronomical as well as cultural highlight of Wheaton, Illinois. <laughs> I hate it when my favorite restaurants close. I hate that. Now you got to find something else. It's just the place where you can relax and be yourself. Right, right. Oh. Okay, question number four. One thing that people may not know about you is what? Well, just how wonderful it is to be a boring historian. You know, people think, well, going to the library, sitting around reading books all day, what a boring life. Well, it's anything but boring. I've just been uh, delighted day in and day out to have that kind of life. Have you ever read Anton Chekhov's The Bet? No. You ever read that? No. 
in the book, I'm not going to tell you, it's a short, it's a, it's not a book. It's like a, a short story that in the book, he, he has these two men make this bet and they were talking about life imprisonment or the death penalty. And one says it's better just to be dead rather than be alone. And the other guy says, you know, basically you want to put a bet on that. And so they make this bet. And for years, one of them agrees to be alone and completely by himself, cut off from the world. It's a fascinating story, but at the end of it, I mean, he ends up, I'm not going to give you the ending, but he, he does say in the, in the story, there's this part where the guy that's locked up, he says, I've been in more places than you could ever imagine. Cause he could have any piece of literature. He had to like write it down on a slot and just get these books. But I don't think people realize that the, the adventure, it does something different to your mind. It, it takes you places and into the minds of people. I don't think I'd want to be entirely isolated, but uh, a, lot, a lot of isolation has been pretty good. Well, I think I think people like to be quiet and to do, just reflect. I think that's a that's not a bad thing, especially just to really just get an idea of who we are. But the next question, final question: If you are an era of history, any history, world history, uh, American history, whatever you pick, what era would you be, and why? I remember asking uh, one of my favorite teachers, David Wells, once about question similar to this. And he said, well, intellectually and even spiritually, there's many places I'd like to be. But if I wasn't living today, I'd be dead because he'd had a physical condition that had to take him to the hospital and and have a procedure that wasn't available even 10 years earlier. So intellectually, it would be great to be at uh, the table of Martin Luther and hear him spouting off and and, uh, a a mixture of craziness and and deep, uh, deep spirituality. It'd be, it'd be wonderful to uh, know Latin well enough to understand Thomas Aquinas as he's dictating some of the Summa Theologica. Boy, you know, apparently he wore out several people a day dictating these these books. It'd be, it'd be wonderful to hear David George, the again, one of the great African-American preachers of the early, late 18th uh, century. As he as he encouraged uh, his his uh, congregations in Georgia and then uh, Canada and then Sierra Leone to go on with the gospel. So when you're a historian, there's just too many places, too many, too many. Yeah, but, I, but, but to stay alive, I kind of would like to live in the present. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's get into you talk about the present. Let's get into your, a bit of your biography, who you are, how you came to faith, and. How did you ever become a historian? I know that's a loaded question for a historian. So we're we're looking for the the thirty thousand foot view. <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, historians in general are not too self reflective, so it's actually maybe a little bit hard question to uh, answer. But I always enjoyed reading uh, historical things, American history first, eventually the history of Christianity. I was an English major in college, did a master's degree in comparative literature, but then decided for intellectual reasons, but then also spiritual reasons. After college, after graduating from Wheaton College, the, the question of what, what was real about the world, what was real about faith became urgent in a new way. And, and I, I did find through studying the Reformation, studying particularly the life of Martin Luther, and then some of the things around him, that there were answers to intellectual questions, answers to uh, personal questions that I found in that historical era, historical debates, I had not found in my experience of contemporary Christianity. So after having sort of been reading on my own history for all my reading life, and then seeing how how important the uh, understanding of a new angle on the faith provided by studying the 16th century, it just seemed natural to go on. And, you know, lo and behold, you could actually in those days make a living. Uh, as a historian, I'm not, things are really rough now for people who are trying to study history and, and they weren't great when I studied it professionally, you know, went to graduate school, but at least you, you could get a job. So uh, I think I became a historian because of the sense that examining what had happened in the past gave me real insight into the nature of humankind, the nature of human cultures, the, the possibilities of Christian faith. Later, uh, actually quite a bit later, when, when I uh, got to know a little bit about Christianity around the world, it was the same thing. Just super revealing uh, about the character of Christianity uh, opened up by looking at historical development in places like Canada, uh, Britain, 
the continent eventually, Africa, Latin America, Asia. So once sort of dipping my toe into the historical stream, it just seemed like I needed to go deeper and take a bath and, and just, just, just stay there. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You mentioned that it's hard to make a living as a historian nowadays. Why is that? The classical liberal arts model in which the ideal is students who do who want to study anything, veterinary science, engineering, business, will have an exposure to philosophy, history, literature, the theory of the social sciences, the history of science. That model is under tremendous pressure because of the economic realities of our time, because of how difficult it is for liberal arts colleges and liberal arts emphases and universities to get the funding they need, as, as opposed to the, the fields where people are being trained to get that first job right away. I've seen some really discouraging figures, and just, just recently about the number of historians employed at universities and colleges throughout the Midwest, almost every place you can look, a reduction from half to a quarter to a third of, of the people who used to be a teaching thing. And I think our, our world in the West is hyper-focused on the present. So the expansion of the internet has been good in some ways. There's certainly more information about more things available. Of course, quality checks are good. Some of the information is just, just bogus, but you can find, for example, working on this book on the, the Bible in the 19th century, for almost anything that was a book in print, I could bring it up on my computer in 30 seconds. For most of what was in the newspapers and the periodicals, it took a little bit more work, but I could, could, could bring it up. So I, I had, sitting right here at my computer, a library better than any library in the world around 1960, 1970. So that's a huge benefit. On the other side, however, the internet makes it possible for people to be drawn into what's happening around the world, drawn into what is being contested in their own environment, and the uh, attraction of things that are immediately present and that seem to call for immediate, at least, opinions, if not reaction, is very, very strong. And so I think that hyper- focus upon the present has detracted from the understanding that in order to understand the present, we have to have a better grasp of the past. And then when the past does come in, into play, it's, it's almost always in the popular media, a simplified, simplistic, overly reductionistic approach. So I think, for example, that the Black Lives Matter and debates over critical race theory have been really important for drawing into the public eye genuine facts of life that had been obscured. But the way in which that focus is, is sometimes brought to bear is, is as if nothing else matters. And so the proponents and the opponents end up shouting and getting excited and demonizing their opponents rather than being pushed to examine more carefully and with a fuller understanding the events of the past. In this particular instance, 
it's just as a historian, it's just it's just imperative to realize how ever-present considerations of race were in American history. But if I say American history is only the ever-present consideration and difficulties of racial stereotyping, then I've betrayed what actually happened because the right. past is the past is is broader. But in our media age, it's the extreme positions that gain the attention, that gain funding, that gain the pushback, and that monopolize debate. And when, as you know, as a conductor of this kind of podcast, if, if someone wants to say, well, to answer your question, we need to examine three background factors, and then to keep in mind this and that, well, you've lost at least some of your audience. But if you say, what's, what's the situation about X? And I'm really firm and vigorous and have a sharply pointed answer, then that's going to carry. And people will be picking that up. And that phenomenon, I think, has undercut the desire for fuller, deeper, richer historical understanding, which is available. We're, we're living in a great age of, of uh, seriously produced history. But we're also living in a great age of dismissing seriously produced history. Well, that's a long you, answer for the question, but oh but no, no, I think, no. I think you have there's kind of economic factors, but then there's also cultural factors that explain why uh, historical, but why becoming a historian as a as a way of earning your living is becoming more and more difficult. I know this is a loaded question because I've just read this. <laughs> uh, the book is called, for those who can't see, you're not on our YouTube, but you're on our audio. It's, it's simply called Evangelicals, who they have been, are now, and could be. And the first really part of the book is just arguing over the term itself because there are challenges. You have those who are self-identifying as, as evangelicals. You have associations that have called themselves evangelicals and have the, the points. Of course, David Bevington, who's coming on the show, um, talking about his his quadrilateral. And even you guys debate the validity of the quadrilateral, which we'll get to in a moment for those that don't know who it is. But let's really get into it because, and here's here's why this is your other book, <laughs> the, the Rise of Evangelicalism, because you give a basic, and I say that putting all the qualifiers around it, of the starting of even um, American evangelicalism, which I find to be very key and helpful in understanding the tenets of it, especially with Whitfield. So I don't remember the question that I asked you. <laughs> What's an evangelical, Mark? What's an evangelical? Well, uh, I, I made a living for almost 40 years teaching undergraduates and graduate students. And I got to say a lot, it's complicated. <laughs> That's what you should, and I know you're not a Facebook person, but they have your relationship status. It's complicated. <laughs> it's evangelical, it should have, it's complicated. But go ahead and describe so, that. So let me start with what I think it'd be a, a, a simple way of getting at this. The evangelical used as an adjective goes way back to the to the Middle Ages. Actually, one of one of the first times that term was used was with the followers of Saint Francis. So, in the 11th and 12th century, to be an evangelical was to sit very lightly to your possessions and even perhaps to follow Saint Francis and and Claire, his, his the, the female counterpart, to just give your stuff away. Well, with, with the, and this is of course a simplified history, but in the 16th century. Protestant leaders, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer in England, uh, said, well, the church has preserved a lot of what's really important, but, but the machinery of the church has gotten away from understanding the heart of Christianity as it had been communicated by Christ and kept alive by the Holy Spirit. And what was being lost was an understanding of God's free grace, the good news of the gospel, the evangelion that offers peace, uh, offers people peace with God, reconciliation with God and with, with others. And so in, in the 16th century, the, the, the adjective evangelical came to be used on those, uh, the emphasis that stressed 
God's grace as the key matter for understanding uh, Christianity. So that that's an element in Protestant circles, and it's even present a little bit in Catholic circles with our reforming movements of people who say, well, yes, we do need to, we do need to emphasize more the offer of reconciliation, peace with God, forgiveness of sins by grace. It's a, it's a subordinate element in, in Catholic circles until, until much, much later. It's dominant in Protestant circles. But 16th century, 17th century, it, it's really hard to say, well, Martin Luther's an evangelical, John Calvin's an evangelical, uh, Menno Simons is an evangelical, because the structures were such that these groups either di- didn't want to have anything to do with each other or, or didn't, they, didn't, they weren't identified as evangelical. They weren't identified as Reformed, as Lutheran, as Mennonite, as Anglican. It's, it's not until we get to the 18th century that some of the tendencies that have been present all along are heightened and highlighted, and some of the structures that had given shape to the institutional history of Protestantism begin to weaken. And we get people like George Whitfield, who several times in his career would be challenged, but well, you're, you're a priest in the Church of England. Don't you want to uphold Church of England doctrine? He said, well, you know, if you're a Baptist, if you're a Congregationalist, if you're a Quaker, and you preach the new birth, that, that I want to be with you, the, the Wesleys, and, and their reforming movement within the Church of England, and eventually with the Methodist movement, said, well, church order is, is important, but what's really, really important are people who understand that it's God's free grace in Christ that brings us uh, salvation. So, so you get, in the 18th century, the 19th century, the beginning of the movement from evangelical, from an adjective to a noun, although that's a very long process, Mm-hmm. And I think is what, what uh, particularly David Bebbington has shown and what we try to point out in the book, the book you mentioned, it's really not until after World War II that using evangelical as a noun. So what is Billy Graham? Well, people don't say, well, he's a member of a Southern Baptist church. They say Billy Graham is evangelical. It's, it's only after World War II that we get a history writing about evangelicalism as if it's a category, a real-life category. Early, you would say, well, Charles Simeon was an evangelical in the Church of England. Charles Wesley wrote evangelical hymns, but Wesley's a Methodist. Charles Simeon's a, a, an Anglican. Uh, Charles Finney was, was a dynamic preacher of revival. There were evangelical elements in, in his theology. Jonathan Edwards had, was, was a great evangelical theologian, but you, you, you just, you can't write about all of those people together because they didn't have connections. Whereas, beginning with the National Association of Evangelicals, beginning with the, uh, the, the, the worldwide ministry of Billy Graham, beginning with uh, Christianity Today magazine, you have institutions and researchable facts that are concentrated on what it means to be and evangelical, and then the great contribution of David Bebbington in, in his book, uh, late uh, 1980s, Evangelicalism in, in Britain, was to say, well, what are the characteristics of these evangelical movements that now we can call evangelicalism? Well, there's the reliance on the Bible uh, uh, as a chief authority. There's, a, uh, there's the belief that the cross of Christ is a key thing in reconciliation of God and humans. There's often conversion, although that's a little bit tricky because we get some well-identified evangelicals in the modern world for whom conversion is, is, is less important than it is for, for others. And then there's activism. So Bible, cross, conversion, activism, Bevington quite clearly showed, were characteristics of movements in the church that particularly in the last couple of generations, you, you can define, pe- define people as problems. What about groups like uh, the Lutherans? What about groups like the African-American churches? What about uh, in the post-Vatican II era where you have Catholics who will say, well, my experience of the Holy Spirit was like a conversion and, and clear we follow the church, but we follow the church because the, the, the church honors uh, the scriptures. Bevington is very uh, clear in saying that he's isolating characteristics not providing a definition. And I, I actually think on that score, you can say evangelicalism is 
the conceptual understanding of Christian faith that emphasizes these four things. On the ground, in groups, in historical development, it's much harder to say hmm. you're talking about evangelicalism. I've mentioned already uh, how uh, enjoyable it's been for me to, to, to study uh, African-American Christians in the late 18th, 19th, 20th century. And here are groups that are focused on the Bible, believe in conversion, have a very strong place for the cross of Christ, and when it's permitted are quite active in the faith. And you say, well, these, many of these African-American traditions are clearly evangelical. But if you would say, well, let's, let's try to write a history of evangelicalism that includes the black churches and the whole panoply of white churches. Well, you can do it. But you can say, well, here are some evangelical emphases. James W.C. Pennington, uh, Frederick Douglass, Charles Hodge on the, from the white Presbyterian, mm-hmm. uh, Samuel Schmucker, white Lutheran. But there's, there's no institutional connection between them. They're just, they're developing in, in separate streams. Mm. Years and years ago, I, I did a book on evangelical professional Bible study. And I, I look back now and say, well, it's an okay book on what I researched, but I didn't have any African-Americans. Mm. African-American approaches to the scriptures are really quite different historically, not, not 100% different, but quite different historically than, than the white churches. Can we say we have an evangelical history of the Bible, evangelical history of Bible study, if we exclude African-Americans? And then you're interested in, as many people are quite appropriately, and how Christian faith is, is spreading in some parts of the world very, very rapidly. Institutions like the World Evangelical Fellowship, send, in that case, send Brian Stiller around the world to report on evangelical movements. Sometimes the movements he talks about call themselves evangelical. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes there, there are things that look pretty strange from these traditional evangelical Presbyterians. There's <laughs> mm-hmm. a, a lot of health and wealth amongst these uh, prosperity gospel and these. Are, are they, to what degree is a person still an evangelical when they talk occasionally about prosperity? What mm-hmm. degree are they evangelical? They talk a lot. What degree are the evangelical? They talk all the time. Well, it's, it's very hard to, to, to put these things together. The general point I think I'd like to make is that evangelicalism, conceptually, is a pretty clear category. There's, there's styles of Christian faith, particularly in the modern era. You can say, well, that's evangelical. Evangelicalism as a researchable object, institution, substance on the ground, is a much harder entity to get your mind around. This is why we, David Pebbett and I have talked about this and really argued about it for, for a long time, because I, I, I say there is no such thing that you can actually research as evangelicalism. There's clearly a concept of what evangelicalism means, but if, if, if I'm going to study American evangelicals, I've got to put in there a lot of people who don't have anything to do with each other. So how do, how do I write a history of evangelicalism, if there's no one place I can go to research that history. Well, Bebbington says, well, the concept is clear. The characteristics are clear. And you put together the people who share the characteristics. Well, that can work when you kind of grow up thinking, well, evangelical means the National Association of Evangelicals, Moody Bible Institute, Asbury Seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. But but does it include also the Assemblies of God does it include also the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Does it include also the Catholic groups now that want to call themselves evangelical. Well, conceptually, yes. For research historical purposes, is I think a different answer. I, I've meandered on an awful lot. No, 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 no. What was it that the term that they threw at you? You were an, uh, a nominal nominalist. Was right. that the term? I, yes, I, I, yes. I, I think that when you name evangelicalism, when, when people say, here are the characteristics, that makes sense. But is evangelicalism something real that you can actually research? And I, that, that's where I think it isn't. <laughs>
you and I both had Wells. Right. Um, and I mean, of course, he wrote the book, The Courage to be Protestant. He right. was done with right. the terminology altogether just because it's become when everybody self-identifies as it, it's lost its meaning. And and you we both know that terms may have have a meaning at one time, but words and history are fluid. So so I think of I think of what C.S. Lewis said when he, he talked about words are like a stream. They change over time. They meander back and forth. Like the word scan. Now we just just means like to, to glance over. But that's not how it was historically. It was like an examine intently. And so we, we've come to this point where, I mean, are we at this turning point where evangelicalism and or evangelical is just lost? And do we try to adopt a new term? Like personally, I think of what Bonhoeffer did in World War II, where it was like, we're the confessing church. And again, you're just subsplintering. And then that itself will become historically, if if I'm a, you know, any type of term that we employ is going to lose its meaning from its original intent at some point in time as it goes on. And unless you're Roman Catholic or Orthodox, and even then, I mean, you've got a set right. a set of beliefs that are institutionalized right. that can adhere to. But when it's a free association of self-identification, that becomes a big issue. So we take the term evangelical in the early 1940s. There were white fundamentalists, primarily in the Northeast, Midwest, West Coast, who said, we, we want to keep a lot of what the fundamentalists were defending, but we, we want also to re-engage the culture. We, we want to put a new stress on, on how learning, when carried out properly, can help us. We, we want to engage with uh, the broader uh, Christian world and the broader world of academia. So let, let's, let's find a term that lets us keep what was really important in fundamentalism, but but can broaden things out. Well, let's call it that's evangelical. We said we get the National Association of Evangelical. But then right away, well, what about the Assemblies of God? What about these Pentecostals? When Pentecostalism became a, a phenomenon in America in the early 20th century, oh boy, most Arminian, Arminian groups, Methodists, Nazarenes, Reformed, said that these, this is an aberration. If, if this is Christianity, it's a very skewed form of Christianity. But there were, by the 1930s and 40s, leaders of the Assemblies of God who, who looked like faithful Christians, talked like faithful Christians, acted like faithful Protestant Christians. So the leaders of the NAE said, well, do they, do, do, are they interested? And they were interested. And so we have, right from the start, Major contribution to the National Association of Evangelical are, is the Assembly of God and then eventually other Pentecostal groups. So a, a word was being used more broadly than it had been earlier in the century. And then, and then right away also, what about the Missouri Synod Lutherans? These people, above everybody else, believes in, in grace, salvation by grace through faith. But, you know, they also believe that baptism communicates the new birth. <laughs> and when they, when they take communion, they, they think Christ is there. Uh, now, should they, well, so they sort of were in and sort of were not. So the word, the word was flexible from the beginning. And then more recently, we, we, we have the, the, the obvious question, what, what about African-American groups? Uh, 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 they share the characteristics. We, we got a really nice essay for the book you mentioned by Jamar Tisby, of the mm-hmm. black, Scholar, activist, asking the question, should African-Americans be considered evangelicals? In, in, in the book, at least, he says, of course they should, because they have these, these kind of characteristics. But the National Association of Evangelical Leaders really just, they weren't alert to that question. So it's, it wasn't until at least the 60s and then the 70s, Billy Graham began to reach out in, in some intentional ways to black communities. There, were, there was other sorts of interchange, but until the, the government move to desegregate society, the idea that you could have a single institution, regardless of what you call it, in which there was a longstanding white Christian Protestant tradition and a longstanding black Christian Protestant tradition considered as one thing, it's just an impossible notion. But more recently, the question becomes alive. And then even more recently, in, in the United States, where we've got the politicization of the evangelical mm-hmm. world, 
you, you've got to say, well, gosh, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm a, this kind of Christian. I believe in the authority of the Bible. I, I, I think it's important people to be converted to Christ. The cross of Christ is, is important. You need to be active in sharing the faith and showing. But you know, I don't want to get involved in the political disputes. I don't want to say to someone who voted for uh, Trump or voted against Trump, "You are my brother. You are my ally." Uh, I want to keep people defining their religious character on religious questions, but not a political one. But but in the contemporary world. It, you know, when when so many of the voices in the public sphere and then some voices in the religious sphere are defining evangelical by their political stance, and you've got, in your metaphor, a wonderful metaphor, you've got the river moving on and the word that uh, had denoted certain things in the past, for at least many people, does not denote the same thing. And then we have the world situation. What, what what are we going to say about the Chinese house churches where conversion is important, authority of the Bible is important, cross of Christ is important, Christian active, and, and who who if they know about the American situation, just it just doesn't doesn't register to, at all. Are these people evangelical? Are they not evangelical? Are they are they non-American evangelical? <laughs> so you can start stringing together adjectives, but of course, then you lose the, the coherence of a, a single term. Well, even as you're talking about African-Americans, whether or not they're considered to be evangelical according to the definitions that have been chosen, and, and, and again, I defined as, let's say, the National Association of Evangelicals according to the criteria in which they've established, although... Of course, we would both agree that, or at least I would think so, that that's just one particular manifestation of that. But then you think in other terms, like, for example, we had Sam George on, and Sam is of, of Lausanne and diaspora, and and we're talking about immigrant Christianities in the plural here in the United States. I mean, we haven't talked about the Latino uh, church. We haven't talked about right. the Indian church or Chinese or Asian and, and the many different incarnations of that itself. And so there are many different. And so we're, we're struggling for those definitions. But then you have something come along like Lausanne. And Lausanne does try to give an overarching umbrella as a clarification. Help help our listeners understand what Lausanne is. I know that's not necessarily your field of expertise, but I'm sure you can speak into it. And what has that done for the understanding of what evangelical is? Well, yes, the Lausanne movement really is important. It, uh, it's referring to the 1974 meeting in Lausanne, Switzerland, called together. I'm going to say primarily, but certainly is a major factor by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association the Congress on World Evangelization, which uh, among its other activities produced a Lausanne Covenant. So it's, it's a kind of statement of, of faith. Uh, actually, a very important gathering together of people who emphasized evangelical characteristics. As George Marsden uh, famously defined evangelical once, well, evangelical is somebody who likes Billy Graham. So this <laughs> So Did he write that in religion and American culture? Is that uh, the book? I, think he, I think I remember the Billy Graham part because I laughed just because yeah. of of uh, I think that's really true. <laughs> what what uh, came at Lausanne was an effort spearheaded by John Stott and then a few other colleagues to pull together a doctrinal statement, a covenant that would speak very broadly for those around the world who were concerned actively about evangelism, and there were many de denominations represented. There were more nations represented at Lausanne than at the United Nations. The Lausanne mm -hmm. Covenant is what I would call a kind of classical Protestant understanding of religious authority, scripture, uh, the way of salvation focused on grace in Christ. The innovation that people have focused upon, particularly in recent historical studies, is that there was a clear statement in the Lausanne Covenant that the gospel was designed for reconciling people to God and reconciling people to each other on earth. So it wasn't, it wasn't a social gospel, but there's a very clear social implication of Christian faith spelled out in the Lausanne Covenant in a way that had been at the least de-emphasized and in some cases disregarded or even opposed in traditions that we might call 
Western or at least American evangelical history. So the Lausanne Covenant has actually worked very well around the world for some groups, not not maybe a huge number, but some groups who would say, uh, we want to associate the work of God that we see in our place with other things around the world. And the Lausanne Covenant has been a way to, to, to do that because it's not, it's not overly specific on things like the sacraments that divide evangelical people. It's not uh, detailed on explaining how the Christian gospel can be worked out in this life, but it says definitely that it should be worked out in this life. And so it is it, it, served very important. Years ago, did a, a textbook on, on world Christianity called Turning Points. And I've actually been delighted that, to find two younger historians, David Comline and Han Nguyen Concert Comline, who recently re- revived, re- revised the book. But in later editions of the book, I, I've tried to specify the Lausanne meeting and the Second Vatican Council as the two key events in the latter part of the 20th century that, that, will, that people can look back on as key turning points for institutional Catholicism and met huge changes that are still being discussed and implemented. But then for the Protestant world, it uh, represented a, an alternative to the institutional developments of the World Council of Churches, where there were all sorts of elements, some that evangelical would say would be fine and really helpful, and some that evangelical would say would be really distorting the Christian gospel. So those, whether or not people in 20 years or 50 years or 100 years will look back and say, well, those really were the key moments. Certainly, uh, from our perspective in the early 21st century, what Lausanne represented is a, a real good faith effort supported by a, a wide, not a, not a universal, but a wide spectrum of people that would be relatively traditional, relatively confessional, relatively evangelistic in their, in their outlook. It, it represented a way of coalescing, bringing together, at least temporarily, at least on the basis of the covenant, was very disparate. Using the term evangelically characteristic, evangelical groups tend not to be institutional builders in the same way that denomination, formal, formal denominations are. And so the Lausanne Covenant was a really important signpost that many of these groups that look like they're just harem scarum and scattered and independent do actually have a, a center, do have some coherence. And so it, it really, I think, remains a very important uh, event in late 20th century American Christian history and not just Protestant history. But I'm pretty much convinced that if the, the ordinary pastor and ordinary evangelical church said, now today we're going to examine how important the Lausanne Covenant is, you know, 95% of the audience and the congregation said, well, the, the what? what? What are we talking about here? I've never heard of this Lausanne Covenant. And that, that would be a problem where what people like myself, whose job it is to sit in a library and read things, would know about a very important event, a very important document. But the dissemination of information explaining why that was important just hasn't gone too far. Would I be wrong in concluding that? is an evangelical? It's complicated. There are lots of things in people who are evangelical in belief, but have not generally been included in who many of us think are evangelicals. One of the things that Bebbington showed us when we talked to him was that evangelicalism has always been in conversation with culture. Noel brought out something about American culture that wouldn't have been as apparent to him as a, a Brit. It wasn't until after the civil rights movement that certain shifts happened in American evangelicalism, good and bad. We could recognize groups normally, not even considered as part of us, but the stake was also set for politics to co-opt the spiritual heart of evangelicalism too. I like the fact that Dr. Knoll is not shy about showing us the complications of evangelicalism. I appreciate that because that's how life is. I like how he says that it's conceptually a pretty clear category, but on the ground, it's much harder an entity to get your mind around, to get a hold of. Now, I know many of us wish that wasn't true. We want it to just be simple, but 
I like it because it presents the truth of the matter. That's how life really is. It's complicated. It's not always that easy. Now, sometimes it is, but other times it is complicated. We are complicated. So why is all of this important? What does this conversation do besides muddy the waters? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. First, I think we need to be careful as we assess the past. We need to look deeply and sometimes into places that we wouldn't expect. We may find kindred spirits we didn't know, and we may find problems in our own tribes. That might see, happen with you. Have you noticed that? I mean, I think you and I both need to be honest about that, because if you're not, if I'm not, then we are depriving ourselves of resources and connections within Christ's church on the one hand, and stifling our ability to correct errors in thought and deed that will always creep in. Second, it's actually not all doom and gloom. I know sometimes we seem to paint it that way, but it's not. There's hope. You know, when I ended this conversation with him, we were talking about the Lausanne movement for a reason. It was, as Dr. Knoll says, a good faith effort to bring together disparate or different parts of the body of Christ for the purpose of spreading the gospel. Boom. It did look further out in a field than just the West. It sought and, as Sam George told us, still seeks to hear from the church around the world. We need to hear the church around the world. Sam is from India and his family have been Christians since the 12th century. That's about 900 years for you non-math people. Evangelicals are bigger than we tend to think. Certainly bigger than the political definitions that we have here in the United States. And we need to remember that. Dr. Noel called attention to the fact that being part of the evangelical church is about belief, about God's free grace reconciling us to himself. But part of it also is that the grace reconciles us to one another. And that's where Bevington's activism comes in. The way we live out our faith matters. And we're going to talk more about that in part two of our conversation later on this week. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping us to water the world. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. You have many different podcasts that you can check out. And I am so grateful that you have decided to listen to us. And also, we want to hear from you. Go to any of our social media pages and respond. Tell us what you're thinking. Tell us what you're dealing with. And we might try to have a show on that in the future. Also, make sure that you... Open up your app where your podcast is. Take a moment to rate us because it tremendously helps us and actually helps other people to be able to find us. I want to thank our Apollos Water team again for helping us to water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the road.